Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. Food banks across Ontario are using language such as crisis, unprecedented, unsustainable to describe the growing number of people depending on them. More employed people, more families with children, more of everyone. And it's got people saying charities cannot fix food insecurity. Governments must. With us now for more, Sarah Stern. She's Director of Community Involvement and Executive Director at the Maple Leaf Centre for Food Security. Talia Bronstein. Vice President of Research and Advocacy at the Daily Bread Food Bank. Alain Brandon, Vice President of Sustainability, Social Impact and Government Relations for Loblaw Companies Limited. And Valerie Tarasak, Professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto and Lead Investigator for the National Food Insecurity Research Group called PROOF. And we are very happy to have all four of you here at our table tonight for a very timely and important discussion little background before we start, Valerie. Food banks emerged in the early 1980s. At the time, what was the thinking behind their creation? So when they started, there was an, a recession. Um, and so what we saw was an emergence of community organizations. In the beginning, labor, labor unions were involved, trying to cobble together resources locally to help people that were in hard times because of a loss of employment. At the beginning, people thought it was a temporary thing. Oh, so and it was not meant to be a permanent fixture? Definitely not. Um, and as time passed, we saw food banks become more and more entrenched and the whole model of food charity now, you know, over the top. But in those early days, and even to this day, we hear food bank operators saying, you know, they don't want to be here, they're temporary, they want to work themselves out of business. These temporary institutions have lasted 40 plus years. Yeah. All right, let's, if we can, I'm going to ask our director, Sheldon Osmond, to bring up a few graphics here, and we're going to go through some of the numbers. Uh, here we go, Sheldon. In 2022, 2.8 million people lived in a food insecure household. That's nearly one in five Ontarians. That can range from anything from worrying about running out of food to going entire days without eating. This number has jumped by 3% since last year, and it rose in every province. It includes nearly 700,000 children in Ontario, those under the age of 18. Food inflation, as opposed to everything else, food inflation is now at 9.7% following months of consecutive double-digit increases. It's coming down, but it's still too high. Meanwhile, minimum wage in this province is $15.50 an hour. It is tied to inflation, so it will go up. The maximum Ontario works rate for one person is $733 a month, or a tad under $8,800 a year. That's the same as in the year 2018, and it is not tied to inflation. The maximum ODSP, Ontario Disability Support Program rate for an individual, is $1,228 a month. That's almost $15,000 a year, and that is even with the current government of Ontario raising it by 5%, and it will soon be tied to inflation. Let's keep going. Even though unemployment is at a record low right now, food bank visits in Ontario increased 43% from 2019 to 2022. Ontario saw the second highest increase in Canada, behind only the province of Alberta, where visits increased, can you imagine, 73%. 
And one more graphic here. In March, the Daily Bread Food Bank, represented here today on our group, saw the most clients it has ever seen in a month. In its 40-year history, almost 270,000 visits. That's quadruple what they saw before the pandemic. From 2021 to 22, the proportion of their food bank clients with employment as their main source of income has more than doubled to 33%. Talia, how shocked are all of you at Daily Bread? I mean, it's shocking the extent of it, but at the same time, it's not a surprise to us at all. When you see, from a public policy perspective, decisions that are being made, you see... Social assistance rates have not kept pace with even inflation, let alone the the cost of living. We see um, things like minimum wage, again, that's just not kept pace with the true cost of living. We see unaffordable housing in every part of Ontario, but particularly in Toronto. We see uh, a lack of affordable rental options. We see lack of social housing options. We see um, lack of investments in maintaining the existing stock. So once we see all of these trends over time, it's not that big of a surprise that we continue to see food bank use escalate. But I think what is a surprise is, is around the food inflation piece and just how big of an impact that has had in terms of what we're seeing at food banks. Quick follow-up with you. Who is coming to the food bank now? So I think, you know, generally speaking, we see a slice of the whole city coming to the food bank, but in particular, before um, we would see a lot of individuals with fixed incomes, so people relying on social assistance primarily. But now we're seeing the fastest growing group is actually those who are employed. And that is because of the cost of living. When we do the quick math of if someone's earning 15.50 minimum wage, let's say they're lucky and they have a 40 hour work week, which is actually quite rare for, for food bank clients. Even with that, you're looking at around $2,700 a month in earnings before tax. When we look at um, a studio apartment that's available, that's listed today, Mm -hmm. I believe it's around $1,900. So already you're seeing that that just doesn't add up. So throw in food inflation in there as well. And you've got people really struggling to make ends meet. Sarah, why are we here? I think we're here today to talk about this crisis and try to figure out why more people aren't talking about it and doing more about it. Uh, I'm sure Val will be able to share. New data came out last week, and I think 18.4% of people across the country are now struggling with food insecurity. One in four children is living in a food insecure home. That is not okay. We need to be doing more. We need to be advocating for change and addressing many of the issues that Talia just touched on. And this is the situation. I mean, food banks, as we've heard, have been around for four decades right now. And yet, the the crisis I'm hearing rhetoric used right now, I haven't heard in 40 years. How has it reached this point? I mean, it's obviously for a multitude of factors all outlined here today. I mean, I think for us on the grocery side, you know, we, for as long as there's been food banks, grocery stores have been supporting them. And but even we feel in the conversations we have with partners like Daily Bread, that sort of intense need on the other end of the phone. So it's certainly a challenge. Talia, I'm gonna put something to you that I heard the other day from somebody who is not a dumb guy, and I'm not gonna identify him. Uh, He's not a dumb guy, but he put the following forward. He said, I'm sure this is not all food insecurity, people who show up to food banks. I'm sure it's some people, and he didn't say the majority, but he said, I'm sure it's some people who just want free food. Your comment. 
We hear that certainly from people. I think the important thing to remember is that food is a human right and everyone should have access to food. So our food banks are low barrier. We don't ask for documentation to be able to access those programs. But when you are on the ground, when you talk to food bank clients, you know that no one is going there because you know, they just want to be there. People are going there, and, and Valerie has research that supports this. Food banks are the place of last resort. People go after they have already borrowed from friends and family, after they've already considered selling belongings, taking on debt. Nobody wants to be relying on a charity. It's not a, an experience most people want. And so I think that we have to remember that in an ideal world, people want the agency. They want to have the, the independence to be able to choose the food they want. They want to be able to go to the grocery store and, and afford the food that their family wants and needs. Valerie, is there a stigma still attached to being seen going to ask for food at a food bank? Oh, of course. There always will be. In an affluent society like ours, the idea that you go to a public charity and declare your inability to afford food for yourself and your children, of course, that will never be anything other than a deeply humiliating activity. And it doesn't matter how welcoming, how low barrier these agencies are, nobody will ever go there um, if they don't have to. And that person that said that to you, Steve, you know, you just give him my number and I'll have uh, talking to after this program. could see your blood boiling as I was uh, yeah, even getting the question out of my mouth. But you know that attitude is out there. Well, but they're dreaming. I mean, the 6.9 million Canadians that are living in food insecure situations right now, like, that's not a number of people using food banks. That's a very rigorous measurement of a very significant problem of food access that is done by Statistics Canada. And it's way bigger than any food bank number. And I will add just to that that we survey food bank clients annually, and we know that most clients who are coming to food banks are severely food insecure. That means that they are missing full meals. They're missing entire days of food. Where they have nothing to eat. Where they have nothing to eat. And so the fact that people would think these people aren't deserving of food is, is really problematic. Not that they're not deserving of food, but that maybe... They might be taking advantage yeah. of it. But when you are going a full day without a meal, or even mm -hmm. having to miss a meal, or even having to pull back on the amount of food you're eating, the nutritious, um, how nutritious the food is, I think we have a real problem. Okay, Valerie, let me put this to you. Uh, Ten years ago, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food told Canadians that, quote, reliance on food banks served as a moral release valve for the state. What does that mean? Well, I think there's a mythology in Canada, and it's one that's been particularly drawn upon by at least our federal government, and to a lesser extent provincially, that we don't have to worry about people going hungry. There are charities, there's ample food, um, and, you know, they'll be okay. I mean, it's the image of the, the, that this man portrayed for you, right? That, you know, people are just doing that because it's available to them. And if you think about the media coverage of food drives, which we see constantly in Canada, what we're seeing is abundance. And when we report on donations to food banks or corporate investments in food banks, again, you know, we see here these huge numbers of thousands of tons, thousands of pounds, millions of pounds, whatever. We get a sense that there's an abundance of food. Nobody ever does the rest of the arithmetic. So I think, I think this illusion that somehow the worst of the problem is, in ha you know, is being mitigated by these charity activities is something that has enabled provincial and federal governments to carry on with policies that are, you know, hard-hearted and that are that are at the root of this issue. And yet I always see a premier or prime minister doing a photo op at a food bank Absolutely. numerous times during the year. Absolutely. What do you think when you see that? Oh, it makes my blood boil too. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Your blood's doing a lot of boiling today. Okay, <laughs> gonna watch. Uh, okay, How, wh why are you involved in this? 
Well, the Maple Leaf Center for Food Security was launched about seven years ago, and we wanted to think about what we could be doing to make a difference in Canada, how we could create real social impact. And the issue of food insecurity was something that really came up as it needed to be addressed. So we launched with a big, bold goal of trying to work collaboratively across sectors to see food insecurity reduced by 50% by 2030. In the time that we've existed, food insecurity has only gotten worse. Um, I think as, as Talia and Val have both said, food bank use is, is really a band-aid to the problem. It is helping people that need help today, but everyone agrees that more action is needed. I think for far too long, we've relied on under-resourced charities to solve a big issue. And really, we all need to come together and think about what needs to change and how are we going to drive action um, to ensure that we can see progress against this goal of reducing food insecurity in Canada. And then how about you? Why is your company involved in this? Yeah, I think we're, we're primarily involved because we have access to so much food. That's where the need is. And, you know, we're positioned in communities all across the province and are, are sort of well-placed to give food to these food banks mm -hmm. that need all the support, not to solve the issue, but to sort of address the sort of real-time needs that people are facing. So that's historically been our sort of direct role from a food bank perspective, um, you know, but similar to the center, you know, thinking about what everyone here is thinking about, which is how do we solve it versus treat it. Talia, how much of what you collect and then distribute to people who need it comes from folks like this as opposed to individuals who leave a can in a box as they leave the supermarket? Yeah, so we receive both uh, monetary donations as well as food donations from the public as well as from uh, the private sector. So when it comes to our food donations, primarily that is coming from the food industry, whether that's uh, grocery retailers, whether that's uh, direct from farms, about 30% of our food is actually coming directly from farms. Um, and uh, on a monetary scale, the majority is actually coming from individuals. And that money helps us keep the lights on, of course, a small amount, but Primarily, we're actually uh, investing in our programs. We actually have to purchase a significant amount of food because even through partnerships with, with food industry and, and donations, we don't get a balanced set of, of food that we can distribute. We want to make sure people have access to uh, you know, a balanced diet, and that involves dairy, meat, uh, and alternative, protein alternatives, vegetables, uh, fruit. So about 67% of the food we distribute is actually fresh. So... That's nope. one of the kind of misconceptions is that people just get kind of cans of food at food banks, which maybe has been true historically, but not anymore. Okay, to that end, and forgive my ignorance here, but do you, do you have relationships with hotels around town whereby when they have big events, you get access to the leftovers? So that would be more food reclamation, which is not really in our model, but Second Harvest is kind of the, the leader in that industry. So many of the programs we support also get support from Second Harvest, but that's a very different kind of model that they're operating. Gotcha. And then back to you, Loblaws. Oh, they're not called Loblaws anymore, are they? I just showed my age. Just drop the S. It's just Loblaws now, I know. It's just Loblaws. <laughs> 2,200 stores nationwide. How much food are you folks donating to food banks? Yeah, well, we donate uh, millions of kilograms of food a year, and that, that number is going higher, actually, just specifically for the reason just cited. You know, Historically, you'd go to the store, we'd raise either money at the cash or you would donate, you'd drop it into the bin at the front. And, but increasingly, we're connecting the back of our store uh, into those food reclamation projects. So, so through Second Harvest, through food banks across the countries, connecting food that can still be used and for, you know, to meet a need out in the community. And we just actually, just a few months ago, connected every single one of our stores with a food charity across the country. So you know, trying to meet that rising need. And, and just, you know, for my own edification here, uh, the stuff that you donate, is it all 
sort of top drawer stuff, or are we talking about like maybe that apple with a bruise on it that a client's not going to buy, so that goes to the food bank? Yeah, I think it's all sorts of things come out of the store, depending on whichever stream I just said. So from the best of the best to the stuff that is still good uh, to use, but maybe wouldn't fly off the shelf instantly. Okay. How about Maple Leaf Foods? What do you do in terms of donations to food banks? Yeah, on an annual basis, we're donating about $3.5 million directly from our distribution centers. And we've organized that with four key charities that have wide distribution nets that know that every other week they are receiving ten dollars to $12,000 of product that they'll be able to distribute through their networks. Okay. With that on the record, I'd like your view on how you regard corporation donations to food banks. I think that we need to talk a bit more about who's food insecure. And uh, you mentioned it in your intro that food banks are seeing more people who are from the workforce, and certainly Talia said that as well. We know that in terms of the Statistics Canada uh, surveys on household food insecurity, that over half of households that are food insecure in Canada, and that would be also true in Ontario, are relying on employment incomes. Mm -hmm. So those are people in the workforce, but still unable to make ends meet. What is then the role of corporations as it relates to the problem of food insecurity? Well, all these people that are food insecure are working for somebody. And that means they're, they're, they're working, but they're in conditions that still do not enable them to cover the costs of basic needs. The role of corporations, I would suggest, is not to donate their leftovers through a charity stream, and not to be applauded for doing that, but to be challenged around the conditions that they're providing for their employees, and to be applauded when they can tell us that they've got a workforce that is not part of these god-awful statistics. Ellen, could you react to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we agree that, that it's important that we simultaneously doing all this support for food banks and food charities, that we play a role in, in tackling this issue from other ends. So we, um, we'll talk about wages. So Lawball employs 100,000 people in this province. You know, the average wage, full-time, part-time is $19 for those folks that work in those stores. Um, some people make more, some people make less. And so we're constantly sort of managing uh, how you run a grocery store and pay 100,000 people uh, you know, an amount that sort of meets their needs while simultaneously keeping the price of food down. In another room, a lot of people are concerned, 9.7% uh, inflation, price of food going up, what are we doing to do more to bring it down? So I think we're live to, the, to these concerns and are trying to balance from our seat how you um, make a positive difference on, on all those fronts. I mean, I'm inferring from, from Valerie's comments, Sarah, that she's looking at, at what you two are doing and while she applauds any corporate, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but while she's uh, grateful to see or happy to see uh, corporations contributing, uh, she may also be saying, you know, some of the people who work in your stores are actually people who are needing to avail themselves of food banks because they're not making very much money. Fair comment? I think that we know that a lot of people who are food insecure, as she stated, the majority of people who are food insecure do rely on wages for their primary source of income. We also know that food will not solve food insecurity, and we need to do more to support people on income solutions. So be that through increased social policies or increased wages, both need to be explored. I think at Maple Leaf, we, we've been quite clear in saying we know food will not solve this answer, and we're looking at how we can use our voice and how we can help raise awareness about the issue and really go directly to government to advocate for change as well. Do you see it as more their responsibility or somebody else's responsibility? I don't know. Who do you put on your list of people 
responsible for solving this issue, and in what order? I, I would put government on this list. I mean, I think this, the policies that need to change to insulate Canadians from food insecurity sit in the shop of the federal and provincial government. So I think that's, that is very, very clear. What Sarah keeps talking about is advocacy, and the question is, what does it take to get the attention and the intelligent evidence-based policy directions out of the federal and provincial government? And that's that's a, that's a huge question. And can oh. I jump in on that? Please. Just in terms of where we sit at Daily Bread Food Bank, so part of our mission is, is around advocacy. That is you know, a core component of what we do. And I think every time we have those interactions, whether it's with the private sector, whether it's for the government photo op, we take it as our responsibility to do that education work so that there is no person who is interacting with Daily Bread, whether they're coming on site to our warehouse to volunteer, whether they're donating, who walks away. Our goal is to make sure every person walks away understanding what are the root causes of food insecurity and what are the solutions. And I think having that partnership with the private sector and you know, having those conversations with government is so critical because we need, we need the private sector, of course, to, to um, you know, be the most socially responsible that they can be, but we also know that it's the government's role to set the minimum standards. And until there are minimum standards that are livable wages and, and adequate um, incomes, you know, there's going to be a lot of variability in the private sector and in the nonprofit sector, for that matter. Um, there's just going to be a lot of variability. And so that's why, from our perspective, we welcome those interactions because they're an opportunity for that education, um, collaboration, and potentially even joint advocacy. I, I want to be careful how I ask this next question because we're always grateful when people from corporate Ontario accept our invitation to come have a seat at the table here and share their views with us. Uh, but I know people watching this and listening to this are wanting me to ask you two right now, why don't you pay your people more and maybe up your, I mean, for multi-billion dollar companies, why don't you give more? To, she probably wants me to say this too. Why don't you give more money to the food banks as well to do their thing? Is that possible? Is it possible to give more money? It's possible to give more money, pay your people more. If we're talking about the precarity of life in Ontario, yeah. it gets less precarious the more you pay people. So I'd say at Maple Leaf, we really work hard to provide competitive and decent wages and provide really good benefits for the people who work at our sites. Um, the vast majority of our sites do have employees that are part of a union that also advocate for them. So I think we've done a good job on working on taking care of our people and making sure that they can access the things that they need to live a healthy life. Um, as far as giving more money, I think there's always a possibility. I think we work really hard to make investments in organizations that are driving change, looking to see what works and what makes a difference. So we've invested in things like research, both with the Daily Bread Food Bank and the Ottawa Food Bank, to think how can we help people in the best way possible who are accessing their services. Research has demonstrated that if you are accessing food, you probably need access to other services. So if you can integrate those into, into that model, help people access the other benefits they might need, that can help drive change. So we're trying to do a, let's invest in what's going on right now to help people at the same time as advocating for change and taking care of the people that work for us. Uh, if I heard right, I heard her say she's open to the possibility of giving you more money. So I would hit her up before she leaves the studio. Just my a word to the wise here. Uh, okay, uh, Alain, let me try this with you. You know that there are people who work for Loblaw, singular, who need to use the food bank in order to make it through the day. How does that sit with Loblaw? So, look, first of all, no one should have to go to the food bank. Just full stop. Um, I think, you know, I think for us, when we think about wages is what I said, I think we tried, we think we do pay very fair retail wages. 
And it's, it's really challenging to pull off that balance of how you, um, how you keep the price of food down, pay people as much as you can, and, and um, stay a profitable company that employs 100,000 people. It's something we're at every day. Um, I'm not, I think we're doing a pretty good job of it. And I think it's something for one, it's hard for one company to do on its own, especially when it's grocery retail, when you're talking about those 2% margins that are so well known. So I think that's where government actually has a role to play in, in a progressive minimum wage and, and ensuring that that pressure is being put on, for the lower end of the pay spectrum um, upwards. Talia, I think we invited a bunch of politicians to show up and join us for our discussion here today. And alas, we were unsuccessful in convincing anybody who was in a position of authority on these issues to do so. However, were they here, I think members of the Ontario government would point out that they increased the disability support plan by 5%, largest increase in decades. They would say they boosted earning exemptions by 400%. They have tied uh, ODSP payments to inflation. They've extended health benefits to people on Ontario Works, which is essentially welfare. Uh, anyway, the list goes on. How do you react to that? I think those are certainly important steps forward, but I think we have to remember that it's not one point in time policy changes. We need to see sustained investments over time. And for example, ODSP, it had fallen behind. It had lost pace with inflation. And so even a 5% increase isn't even going to bring people to a place where they can live on today's standards. They're already so far behind. These are individuals who are, you know, $900 below the poverty line. That's with the increase. And so, you know, these are people who cannot work. On Ontario Disability Support Program, most people cannot sustain a full-time job. And these are people who we've legislated to live in poverty. And so I think that, you know, I'm not that surprised that we're not seeing government spokespeople around this table because I think that, you know, they have, you know, these kinds of investments, small incremental changes, but what we really need is transformational change. We need a bright, visionary thinker and mobilizer to take us to the next level in Canada and say, we need a social safety net that works for everybody, that leaves no one behind. And I don't think we're there yet. Does that mean a guaranteed annual income, for example? I think it should be explored in great detail. I think that, you know, I, there's lots of different ways to get to what that looks like, whether it's a universal basic income, whether it's basic incomes, um, where there's different, you know, we have for children, we have for seniors, we need to close some of those gaps. There's different ways to get there. But I think ultimately, yes, what we need is a minimum threshold that nobody in Canada should fall below that income threshold. That's going to be the primary solution to what we're seeing at food banks. We did have that under the previous government of Ontario. There were three pilot programs in three cities around Ontario. One of the first things the current government did when it came in in 2018 was to cancel that. Yeah. Was that a... Well, what was your view of that move? We were really disappointed with that move because I think having the data is really important for making good public policy decisions. Now, in the absence of that data, I don't think that should hold us back from exploring this further. We can do lots of different modeling to understand the impact of basic income. But I think also it broke the trust of people who were enrolled in that program. They took a leap of faith by participating in that program. They thought that they would have this guaranteed amount for a certain number of, of months and years. And that was withdrawn from them. And you know, investments they had made in their own life in terms of uh, education or a better apartment or, or whatever it was to make them have um, a better better outcome in their life, you know, that that went up in smoke. And so I think losing that trust uh, was, was really hard for, for the community as well. Let me get your views on 
You know, every now and then governments see a particular issue or a particular demographic and they say, I got an idea. We're going to have a minister responsible for disabled issues or equity or children or whatever, women's issues, so-called as they were back in the day. Um, what about a minister of food banks? Do we need that? Oh, no. <laughs> I think that would be really bad. You I think mean, I think you'd have a minister <laughs> responsible for food insecurity that can bring together many ministries and think about what do we need to be doing together to address the issue. But the idea that you'd have a government responsible for, for food charity, that would make my blood boil, like Val was <laughs> saying. It, it, it is... It, we know that food will not solve the problem. We need other solutions. So having someone in charge of bringing people together to talk about how we get to those solutions, to ensure that when policies are implemented, we're not only looking at poverty reduction, but also looking at the impact that it has on reducing food insecurity, that to me would make more sense. You were a hard no right out of the gate on this. <laughs> I think we've already got the ministers we need. We've got the Minister of Finance. And at the mm -hmm. end of the day, this is an income problem and the solutions reside with reforming um, standards as they relate to um, income supports in this province, plus employment standards. The other minister we've got that nobody's talked about yet is the Minister of Health. Mm -hmm. And as we languish in this appalling situation with one quarter of children living in food insecure households, um, what, 18 point whatever percent of Ontario households, as we languish in this, in this uh, what we've got is people burning up healthcare dollars because nobody is able to maintain their health in this context of food insecurity. So there is a cost that this province is paying on a daily basis, and that is through its healthcare spending, as it relates to the very modifiable health risk of household food insecurity. It's kind of crazy so the, to, to, to pay a lot of money to treat people who are sick rather than just spend right. it up front. That's right. To, and and you know. still to fail, because we also know that mortality rates are higher amongst people who are food insecure. So... Yeah, we pay more and we still don't even get the, get the end results in terms of health. So that's the other part of the conversation that I think we need to be weaving into the policy discussion. Talia, let me just, uh, you know, for argument's sake, let me push back a little bit on this. I'll, I'll, I'll make the argument. You know, a minister responsible for food banks, if you wanted to call him or her that, could have some convening power to bring a lot of these different ministers together to share some ideas and get stuff happening, uh, you know, could be a specific voice at the cabinet table for food banks in a way that you perhaps don't have right now. Is there any value in that position in your view? I don't think it makes sense to have a minister responsible for food banks specifically. I think that we know what the solutions are. There's very good research, thank you, to, to Val specifically for that. So we know what the solutions are and what we're lacking is the political will to make those investments. And they are upstream investments. And that's the, the hard part. We know, I come from the public health world, and this is always the challenge, that investing upstream takes that, um, that, that leap of faith that those investments are going to be um, enjoyed for generations to come. But that doesn't fit into a political cycle, an election cycle, right? So you have to make that, you have to be willing to make that investment upfront and know that the benefits aren't going to be reaped in your in your election cycle. So I think ultimately, I, I don't think we necessarily need a minister. I think we what we need is for all elected representatives to really care about the issue. And we do our best to, to try to make them care. And I do think that they do care. But I think the problem is politicians see trade-offs. They see we invest this amount in this program, it's gonna increase our, our deficit by this amount. 
There's, there's all sorts of different ways that they want to spend that money. And I think, again, we need that political will to say this is an investment in our future. Mm-hmm. It's an investment in uh, preventing those downstream healthcare costs. Also, we see increased justice costs. We see opportunity costs as a result of poverty and food insecurity. Our colleagues at Feed Ontario did a report and they estimated poverty is costing Ontario $33 billion a year in health, <laughs> justice, and, and missed um, yeah. opportunities. So. We need that investment. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to come from one minister, but I think that we need that strong advocate in government. Elena, didn't hear from you yet on this. A minister for food banks? I think we have enough ministers. I think someone else can take it up. <laughs> You're for fewer politicians. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay. Valerie, here's a bit of an odd question. If Canada's acceptance of food banks is as widespread after 40 years as it appears to be, how do we start to make the notion of food banks unacceptable among the general population? I think, I think we may never be able to do that, but I think what we really need to do is make the notion of food insecurity unacceptable. Because the, one of the problems, and frankly, it's a problem with the way that media covers this issue, is that it's constantly viewed through the lens of food banks and food bank numbers going up, food bank numbers going down, you know, corporations donating to food banks or not. And I think that's part of the problem, not part of the solution. So I would say that the focus needs to be on how do we, how do we get, how do, no, how do we get not just the public, but more importantly, elected officials to take leadership on what is a very serious social issue as well as public health problem. Well, you've tried a lot for the last 40 years and nothing seems to have worked yet. Yeah. So what's what's next? I think we have hit a crisis point, right? As we've seen, you know, this this continued proliferation of food charity in Canada, food numbers, food banks, or sorry, food insecurity numbers are off the charts. We've got a bigger problem with food insecurity than we've ever had before. We've got more and more data showing its impacts on health and healthcare systems, healthcare spending. So, I mean, I feel like we're getting to a point, like the fact that you're convening this conversation is one of the indicators for me that we're getting to a tipping point perhaps mm-hmm. on this issue where everybody is, is agreed that it, the, the, the status quo is unsustainable. And we've run out of time. So you get the last word on this. <laughs> I wanna thank the four of you for coming in tonight and helping us out with this. Sarah Stern from uh, Maple Leaf Center for Food Security, Alan Brandon uh, from the Law Blog Companies Limited, Talia Bronstein from the Daily Bread Food Bank, Valerie Tarasuk, University of Toronto, Department of Nutritional Sciences, lead investigator uh, for proof as well. Uh, We're really grateful that you could all come in and help shine some light on this issue. Thanks. Thank Thank you. you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.